Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or to donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. We are actually right now in the middle of a series, uh, and this is now the third installment from this series as we are going through the book of Mark. Um, And Mark is demonstrating to us that Jesus Christ is the king that they've been waiting for, but not the king that they expected. And yet this unexpected king demonstrates through the power to perform miracles that he has come to bring the world not what they think they need, but what they actually need. And last week, Pastor Phil labored in expositing the first one and a half chapters of Mark's gospel, where we were challenged to witness not only the authority that Jesus brings, but the beginning of two kingdoms colliding, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And last week, one of the incidences documented in the gospel was where they lowered a paralyzed man from the ceiling into a house that Jesus was in. So that way they could bypass the crowd and get him before Jesus so Jesus could then heal him. And what is interesting is that when they got him to Jesus, unexpectedly, the first thing that Jesus did was not heal him but rather say, your sins are forgiven. This has two huge implications. First, the man thought, if I could only be healed, then I would be happy. But for anybody who has ever been healed before, you know that two weeks later, a month later, five years later, something else comes along to bring you stress. Something else comes along for you to worry about or for you to be frustrated about. And so what we find out and what Jesus was demonstrating was that healing is not what this person needed. And although Jesus did restore him physically, he first restored him spiritually. But the second implication was the fact that Jesus demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. Remember this? And when Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins, the Pharisees, uh, who were the religious leaders of, the, of that day, called it blasphemy. However, this week, Jesus does one up on himself. This week, he makes a claim that is so over the top, so out of categories, that the leaders don't even have a word for it. Because what Jesus says this week is that he did not come to reform religion, but he came to end religion as we know it. He came to end religion and replace it with himself. And so once again, Mark is showing us how Jesus exceeds expectation as the unexpected king. And so this morning, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 2, and if you don't have your Bible app or your Bible on you, we'll have it on the screen, but we're going to read uh, the beginning of the text for this morning. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 23, and it says this, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? And in the days of Abithar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is unlawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, this is now chapter 3, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would begin to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord God, for your word. And I pray that today as we dig and as we listen, that Heavenly Father, that we will not just be spectators, but participators, that we will respond to your word this morning. And Lord God, that as your word continues to come to life and we continue to grow, that we will be discipled in the way and under the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen and amen. All right. Listen, in these two incidences that we read, what we see on one hand is the futility of religion, and on the other hand, the finality of Christ. So the futility of religion and the finality of Christ. And here what we have is Jesus is in the synagogue on Sabbath, and the Pharisees are watching him closely to see if he violates any of the religious regulations that everyone used at that time in order to observe the Sabbath. Because, see, the law of God that went way back to the Ten Commandments of Moses demanded that you rest one day of seven. And one reason for this command was because in the Ten Commandments, God starts off by saying, do not have any idols other than me. Don't have any idols in your life. Worship only me. And then the rest of the commandments are sort of guardrails in your life to stop that from happening. And one of those guardrails is to rest from labor. One reason is so that way you don't make your work or your career your idol. So you would not get caught up and forget about what is important. And as Pastor Phil and I were talking about this message this week, he reminded me that part of this is so to cause you to remember who it is that enabled you to work in the first place. Who it is that enabled you and gave you the abilities that you have. I know several people in, in life who say, you know what, I don't need God. Look at my life. I'm successful. Look what I have been able to achieve or been able to accomplish. I don't need him. I built this. I earned that. I worked for this. I did it. 
but of course you didn't create the universe in such a way or fine-tune the earth in such a way that would allow the atmosphere to be chemically balanced so you could have the oxygen that you so heavily rely on to give you the ability to be able to be that successful. And what's interesting is the psalmist talks about a place where God leads us to rest, where he lays us down in green pastures, where we can drink beside still waters, where we can restore our soul, but not because of my own strength or ingenuity, but because of the relationship that I have with the shepherd himself. And this isn't to insult my own intelligence, but to unlock the vulnerability that I have between myself and God and so God commands us to rest one day of seven and as great as that sounds the religious leaders of that day saddled this law with so many specific regulations in fact there were 39 types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath one of them was to pick grain as you walk through a field and now we can kind of understand why Jesus is getting angry because we have to stop and ask ourselves, wait a minute, what is the Sabbath really about? What is, the, what is this day of rest really all about? And I love how John Piper puts it. He says, it's about restoring the diminished, about replenishing the drained, and about repairing the broken. Restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, and repairing the broken. So when this man comes to Jesus with a shriveled hand, to deal with that shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. And yet because they were so concerned to make sure that everyone followed regulation, they didn't even want this man to be healed which spiritually speaking is incredible because this is much like uh, missing the forest for the trees. And if you are not careful, we will miss some of the depth of what the text has to say to us this morning. In fact, in verse 27, Jesus said something that is so profound. He says this, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, I do not have time to really do this text justice, but let me allow to just highlight a few things. What Jesus is trying to show them then is what he wants us to understand today. Because, see, God made several commands, right? He said, don't murder. He said, don't steal. He, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and what we see in verse 27 really are two paradigms. Two paradigms. Human religion and the gospel. Human religion and the gospel. One paradigm is where Sabbath was made for man, and the other paradigm is where man was made for the Sabbath. We have two paradigms, human religion and the gospel. And in one paradigm, write this down, the moral law of God burdens and binds. It enslaves you. But in the other paradigm, the same law actually blesses you and liberates you. Did you catch that? In one paradigm, the law binds you and enslaves you and is a burden to you. But in the other paradigm, the same law that doesn't change liberates you and blesses you. And so what he is talking about in verse 27 is two spiritual paradigms. And he is contrasting them because they are completely different. 
For example, most people in the world who believe there is a God believe that you relate to that God by being good. Now, all religions are really based on that principle, and they may come in different forms. Some religions come sort of nationalist, nationalistic, right? So you have to come into our people group and take on these certain markers. Others are more uh, spiritualistic, and they say you have to kind of earn your way. Others are uh, like formally legalistic, and so they have a certain code, and if you do the code, then you'll be accepted. If you conduct yourself in these ways, you'll be blessed. But either way, all of these stem from this principle of if I perform and obey, then I'll be accepted. And Christianity is not only different than that, but it's actually diametrically opposed to that concept because religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I am fully accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I give God something and now God owes me. But you have to understand the gospel paradigm says, no, 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 God gave to me and now I owe him everything. You need to know that, church, that I owe him everything. We owe Christ all, you see. In religion, you are saved by being better than others. But in Christianity, you are saved by admitting that you're no better than anybody else. There's a difference. That you are a spiritual and moral failure, and you can only be saved by the grace of God. Oh, I praise the Lord for his grace. I praise God for his grace. I praise the Lord that he has shown me grace even before I accepted him. While I was still doing all the things that I was doing, his grace was there, guiding. His hand of protection was upon me. And for that alone, he is worthy of all the praise. Maybe for you, you didn't see it. Maybe you don't see that. But if there's anybody here that says, yes, I can see that even before I gave my heart to God, his hand of love and grace was on me, then he is worthy of praise. There was a British pastor who told this story of what it would be like in antiquity, thank you, where, uh, (laughs) thank you, baby, and um, yes, Lord, where... uh, where the, the, a pagan of that day was introduced to this new thing called Christianity. And they would have a dialogue and be like, oh, hey, I, I hear you're a Christian. That's great, a new religion. That's wonderful. We're all about new religions over here. Uh, so tell me, what's, about, what, what's this Christianity thing about? Uh, uh, where, you know, where are your priests and where are your temples? And, you know, well, the, you know, uh, the Christian says, well, we, we don't have any temples. Oh, no temples? No, no, we don't have any temples. Oh, well, where do your priests go to, to do their sacrifices and, and burn the incense and everything? And, and the Christian says, uh, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, we don't have any priests and we don't do any animal sacrifices. And the pagan looks at them and says, huh, what kind of religion is this? Where the Christian will respond, that's just it. It's no religion at all. It's completely different. And depending on which paradigm you live in, depending on which paradigm that you see through, you will be focused on two completely different things. See, in the religion paradigm, you have to do certain things in order to be accepted. So as a result, you are then focused on detail. 
And, and so you would say, listen, just tell me exactly what I have to do. How long does my dress have to be exactly? How big does my, I mean, tell me exactly what it is that will cause me to be holy so I can be right with God. And, and you are focused on detail because you say, I have to make sure that I press every button to assure that I'm a good person, to assure that I make it to heaven, you see. And so what will happen is you will begin to write into the moral law details that actually are not there just to assure yourself that God now has to approve you. But in the gospel, the law has a completely different function, and you don't focus on yourself, but the gospel has the ability to take you outside of yourself, and you begin to focus on loving God and loving others. Y'all didn't hear me say that. I said you begin to focus on loving God and loving others. And it's an interesting thing how the gospel begins to cause you to look at the motivations of the heart. See, in religion, obeying laws forces you to feel better than everyone else. You look down on others. You have to. It forces you to look at other people. And in your mind, you think that because you're obeying these particular religious laws, that you are morally better than the, uh, the next person that's not. It forces you to think that way. You may not admit it, but you think it. You think it, right? I remember one time... I was driving, and I'm like, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm going to go to Sonic because they have really good breakfast there. I like their breakfast burritos. <clears throat> and, uh, and anyway, and so I was going through Sonic, and I'm waiting at the thing, right, at the drive-thru, and the light's on, and uh, nobody's answering. I'm like, what's going on? So I pull up to the window. I look in. I don't see anybody. And then there's, uh, like, this family, a uh, mom and dad and, like, a teenager that's outside of the door. So I roll up to ask them, do they know what time Sonic opens? only to find out that they were actually homeless. They were picking up their cardboard pieces, and they were going. Well, I was so mad that Sonic wasn't open that I just drove off. I was upset. And as I'm driving off, I began to think to myself, can you believe those parents are letting their teenager just be homeless like that? I would never do that as a parent. Until the Holy Spirit began to speak to me and say, are you feeling morally superior than them? And do you know what God made me do? I had to go back. So I drove, the, I turned the van around, I went back, and I pulled up, and, I, and they were actually walking across the street now because they were leaving. And I said, hey, I said, are you guys hungry? They said, yeah. So we went to the Denny's. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, you can choose from the two, the four, the six. And um, anybody that goes to Denny's knows what I'm talking about, right? Praise the Lord. We have some sanctified saints up in here. Yes, Jesus. And at first the waiter, waitress came back. I said, listen, they're getting water and some toast, no jelly. Just keep that, you know. And then again, the Holy Spirit worked on me. So I said, fine, just give them whatever they want. And as I began to dialogue with them, I, I heard their story and God just began to move my heart. But see, it's so easy to fall under this category, isn't it? It, it, it reminds me of this. If there was a raffle uh, and, and, you, and you and your other friend were about to uh, win a million dollars and it came down to you or them, right? And you're sitting there waiting to hear the result and it was either going to be you or them. And they say the number, they call out the name, and it's them, right? And they're screaming up and down, who, we won a million dollars? I can't believe it. I'm so excited. And you're just like, yes, praise the Lord. 
Yes, that's, that's wonderful. I'm just so happy for you. Oh, you're going to get that car you want? Oh, yes, that's, a, oh, boy, that's great. That's, that's wonderful. Yes, I'm just so happy. Oh, you're going to be able to start that business. Oh, yeah, yeah, get, yeah, you're going to send your kids to college. That's wonderful. That's because somewhere inside, we think we deserved it more than they did. And so we go home and we say, God, what happened, Lord? Now, you know they don't even show up to connect groups. But here I am. I worked for two months with Sister Watermelon. And you know when she came in the, when she came in the church, nobody wanted her. Her fashions were all out of date and everything. I came in and now she's married. Now, that was a miracle, Lord. I should be like in the category of saint by now. I deserve that million dollar. We have this mindset, you see. And now we're kind of understanding why Jesus is upset because, because we, we see how it's unfolding. But the text actually takes it even further than that because Jesus wasn't the only one to get mad. In fact, what it says in verse 6 is that, at chapter 3, is that at once the Pharisees went away and met with the Herodians to discuss plans for killing Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Who were these Herodians, right? Who were these guys? These were supporters of King Herod. And this was a dynasty that ruled Israel, and they represented the Roman occupying power. See, wherever Rome went and, and they occupied a, a particular uh, country or state, they brought with them the culture of Greece. So it was the Greek approach to pluralism, the Greek approach to sex, the Greek approach to politics. It, everything was the Greek approach. And so many of these countries that Rome took over felt insulted by these sort of cosmopolitan, pluralistic, pagan values. So their wrote up these sort of resistant movements and in this case were the Pharisees which means really that it, it, to break it down is is like the Herodians were the blue states and the Pharisees were the red states they, they didn't like each other they had different values they were debating and arguing constantly but now they both have agreed that they need to get rid of Jesus two groups that never talked to each other now be, now do because Christianity offends both. Christianity offends both. See, because write this down. The gospel is not religion nor irreligion. It is not moralism or relativism. It is something else completely. See, the gospel of Jesus is not traditional moral values or do whatever you think it feels right or feels good to you. It's neither of those. See, remember, Jesus tells the, the moral religious Pharisee Nicodemus and the adulterous woman that they're both lost. You see that? They both need transformation. But regardless if you're someone who is a moralist or a relativist, both of these are ways of trying to become your own Lord. Both of these are ways of trying to become your own king. So one person says, Bible? I don't need the Bible to tell me how to live. You know, I don't need that. that, my way, that, that that's outdated. I choose what's right and wrong for me. But then over here you have someone that says, no, no, we got to obey every dot and every comma and, and, and every cross T in order to go to heaven. Both ways you're trying to be your own savior. Both ways you're trying to figure things out on your own. Both ways you are hostile towards the message of Jesus and you're far from it. 
both ways. And both lead to self-righteousness. Because, because the moralist says this, well, good people are in, bad people are out. That's what the moralist says, right? The relativist says, no, 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 no. The progressive and open-minded people are in, and the judgmental bigots, they're out, right? And, and in fact, living in the Bay Area, we actually have a lot of people that, and a huge amount of self-righteousness, because here in the Bay, we think that we are much better than people who think they're much better than other people. I'll say that again. We think we're much better than people who think they're much better than other people. You know anybody that, that thinks they're better than everybody else? Anybody know anybody like that? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, like, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I won't say the name. I can't even say amen because they sit next to me. But pastor in my spirit... I'm shouting amen. I'm doing a dance. I'm saying glory. I'm pointing big lights in the spirit. But right now I have to stay quiet because I don't want to get it when I get home. But I know somebody that thinks they're better than everybody else. But see, the reality is, is that you also think that you're better because you don't think you're better than the person that thinks they're better than everybody else. Do you see this? <laughs> And so secularism leads to as just as much of self-righteousness as imperialism, as, as, as religion does. And, and the gospel carries a completely different message. It's still exclusive, but it says the humble are in and the proud are out. It says those that are alive are in and those that are dead are out. What do you mean? Well, see, it isn't just about the futility of religion. But remember, I also said it's about the finality of Christ. Notice that what Jesus says in verse 28, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice he didn't say, I am the Lord over the Sabbath. But he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's trying to say, I am the Sabbath. You see, the Bible doesn't say that God has love, but that God is love. The Bible doesn't say that God has peace, but that he is peace. And what Jesus is trying to say is that he isn't just authority over the Sabbath, but that he is the Sabbath. And what Mark does time and time again is show us that what the Old Testament teaches, the New Testament reveals. That this law, along with others in the Old Testament, were just symbols. They were just foreshadows pointing to a different reality, pointing to a better reality, pointing to a greater reality. They're just shadows. Look at two people say, it's just a shadow. Just a shadow. Just tell them, it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. And you will minimize the plan of God if you diminish this command down to a 24-hour day. And it would be ridiculous for the church to walk away with the shadow when they have the person. You see what I'm saying? When Becca and I got married on that blessed day, she was so lucky that day. Praise the Lord. And so when Becca and I got married, on, can I come, am I allowed to come down here? I'm going to do it anyway. When Becca and I got married that day and we walked down the aisle and everything, and, and here she is. She came in with her beautiful dress. You should have seen me. I was crying. I was boohooing. She looked so gorgeous. And, and we got married and everything, and there was lighting and, and all this stuff. Well, on the stage, there was me and my shadow. And it would have been ridiculous if after we said our vows, after we did all 
all the things we did, for her to just try to walk off with my shadow, why would she do that when she has the person here? And so often what we do in religion is we take things that were only meant to be shadows and we try to walk with shadows instead of walking with the person of Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews says, let us labor that we might enter into that rest. I wish I had time to really talk about that paradoxical statement. But let me just tantalize your palate by saying this way, that the book of Hebrews is telling us that there is something better, that we have the better thing. In Matthew's book, Matthew records Jesus saying, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me all who are carrying something heavy, and I will give you rest. I dare you to find somebody in this room that's not carrying something heavy, and I will give you rest. Though you cannot see it, there are people in this room carrying baggage. You'd be surprised at the loads and the weight that some people are carrying around and you go to bed tired and you wake up tired and Jesus gives you an invitation to come to him, to come to him. And you can only go to him, see, he's the only one. Because if you go to anyone else, to anyone else at all, all you'll do is find more work. If you go to anybody else, all you're going to do is find more work, see, this is the reason that marriages are difficult. We, we marry someone trying to find someone that will take the weight off of us. But as soon as we really get to know them, we find out that they have baggage too. Mm-hmm. Somebody say amen. And the combination of their mess and your mess becomes so heavy that the marriage begins to break. Because you weren't looking for a man, you were looking for a Messiah. You weren't looking for a wife, you were looking for a maid to come and clean up your mess and to make you feel good about yourself, you see, and fix your problems. But if both of you would cast your cares on Jesus, you see, I don't care how fine they are, ladies. Listen up, ladies. They could be good looking. They could be like the 10 top sexiest men alive like me. I mean, they could just be so good. It's my gift. You know, don't blame me. Praise the Lord. And so and, and, and they could be good looking, but I guarantee you that that person has some baggage. I guarantee you that they have some weight added to them. Listen, fellas, don't get it mixed up. They may be built like a soda con bottle. They may be looking good. And while you're trying to calculate her measurements and add up all this other stuff, you might as well add in the weight that's going to be carried on from the baggage of her past. Because listen, she's not the only thing that you're walking through the threshing floor. With. You see what I'm saying? When you go through that threshold, there's other things you're carrying too. You're carrying her mama and her grandma and the first husband that left her and the ex-boyfriend in high school that broke her heart. You're carrying it all. You're carrying it all. And this is because life brings baggage. And some of you are waking up exhausted and going to work exhausted and raising kids exhausted, serving at the church exhausted, worshiping exhausted, going to meetings exhausted, taking college courses exhausted. And if you're not careful, write this down, exhaustion will cause you to make permanent decisions in temporary situations. Exhaustion will cause you to make permanent decisions in temporary situa situations. And some of you are so tired and inside you're just screaming, I 
need rest. I need rest. This statement about the Lord being, about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath, this statement is so over the top, is so beyond any category that it forces us to have to stop and look at it. And it forces us to think about his lordness and his Sabbathness. New word. Sabbathness. Don't look it up. It's not there. But <laughs> I can have to tell you, and it just sounds smart, right? You know, like you just agree that that's a word. But I had to be honest. So <laughs> when he says he is Lord, he is saying that he knows that there is a God that existed before any sort of time or matter ever existed, and that he is that God. That's what he's saying. That he is that God. And watch this. Now, now, either what he is saying is true or it's a lie. And N.T. Wright says this. He says, now what this means is either he is a liar and you can ignore him or he's telling the truth and you have to throw everything at his feet and say, command me. But it can't be somewhere in between. Either Jesus is who he said he is or he's not. He's either telling the truth or he's not. If he's not, ignore him. But if he is, then your only option is to say, God, here I am. That's it. Command me. Someone shout, command me. Well, that wasn't very good. We'll try it one more time. Someone shout, command me. Yes, y'all need to go back there with some more donuts. Praise Jesus. See, because, it, 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 and if he is who he says he is, then what this means is that you can't just pay attention to him only when you're not busy. Because if he says, if he is who he says he is, then you just, you can't just check in with him every once in a while. Pray every once in a while. Just, you know, kind of when you feel it, when you have time. But he must be the one that your entire life revolves around. His lordness, but also his Sabbathness. When the Bible calls you to rest, there are two levels. One level is you have to take physical time off from your work. And I think most of us who maybe have been in church for a while and, and understand a, at least the vocabulary of Sabbath, that's the kind of thing we think about. And it's good. It's, I'm not telling you not to do it. You need to. Uh, but the Bible also is speaking of something that is different and deep. There's a second level of rest here, not just the first. Because, because what we have to understand is that there is work underneath the work that we really need rest from. There's work underneath the work that we really need rest from because there is a conflict that we find ourselves in that if God doesn't provide a solution, you will never get out on your own. And we have to ask, we have to ask this question, why am I working? Why am I trying to accomplish anything at all? Why, why am I trying to raise kids and be a good parent? And, and why? Why do I go to school? And why do I work for a company? And wh I mean, why? What, what, what's the real reason? I mean, why? Why am I doing this? You see? And the real reason is because there's a level underneath that. Because we're trying to prove to ourselves that we're somebody important. We're trying to show we have value. We're trying to show we're intelligent, that we're accomplished, that we're successful, that we're cultured. We're trying to make a name for ourselves, being a good teacher or a good manager or a good parent. There's a work underneath the work that you really need rest from. And when you enter into this kind of rest, things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. 
Did you hear that? When you enter into this kind of rest, things that used to push your buttons and make you feel a certain kind of way, like they don't do that any longer. Things that used to stress you out and keep you up at night, they don't torment you anymore. And you're going to have to fight to try to make sure that you stay in this rest, you see. Because circumstances and things will come to try to get you to forget about the rest that is made available to you. But you need to know, don't forget. Don't forget. When life gets hard, don't forget. When things begin to come down and stress builds upon your shoulders and anxiety weighs upon your heart and you look at your family or you look at your finances or you look at your health or you look at your friends or you look at your career and you begin to stress out about those things, just remember there is a rest for you that is available that goes deeper than all of that and that gives you not what you think you need but what you really need, you see. As I draw this message to a conclusion... It's interesting because what Mark is trying to communicate is the unexpected king brings to us something in an unexpected way, you see. Because Jesus isn't just one over the Sabbath, but he is the Sabbath. What does that mean for you and for I? What that means for us is this, is that Jesus is the ultimate source for the rest you really need. And until Jesus is enough, then no other person or thing will be. Until Jesus is enough, then no other person or thing will ever be. And here's why. Because there's a deeper level of rest than just physical. See, after God was finished with creation, the Bible says he rested. But, but not because he was physically tired. Have you ever wondered, well, how could God rest? I mean, you know. But, but, but see, it wasn't a rest that, that we're thinking of because God doesn't get physically tired. So what does it mean? It means there's a different kind of rest. See, this kind of rest is a satisfaction rest. This kind of a rest is resting in someone else, and he was resting in himself. And what God the Father did in Genesis, after his labor of creation, and he entered into rest, God the Son did in redemption when he ceased from his labor of redeeming the world on Calvary's cross. When his head hung between the locks of his shoulders and the sun refused to shine and the earth began to shake and the veil was rent from top to bottom on that cross. After he was through bleeding, after he was through breathing, after he was through sweating, after he was through getting nail pierced in his hands and in his feet and the crown of thorns upon his head, after he was through getting his beard plucked, after he was through redeeming the world, laboring in that, you see. After it was all done, he uttered, it is finished. When he said that, it echoed, 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 it echoed, it echoed, it echoed, it echoed, it echoed all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the Old Testament when the Father said, it is finished. And after Christ died, the Bible says that Jesus went and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, entering into his rest. This is the rest that the Lord wants you and I to come into. Because in Genesis, God says it is finished so he could rest. But on the cross, Christ said it is finished so you could rest. So you could rest. If we were honest with ourselves this morning, I just know you can feel the exhaustion. I know. 
I know some of you are just so exhausted. Just from life, just from things, just things happen. I mean, if you think back to when you were 10, if you think back to when you were 12, and you think about what your future was going to be then, and you look at it now, and you're just like, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. There's an exhaustion under the exhaustion. There's a work under the work. But I have good news for you. There's a rest under the rest. Won't you come rest this morning?